Well, uh, we've been talking about the ways of Jesus, practicing the ways of Jesus. And I'm going to take a drink before I get started. And um, the practices that Jesus modeled throughout his life that bring transformation to our own lives. There are many of them. And honestly, we could spend multiple weeks talking about each practice. But I'm trying to cram into one message uh, talking about one practice that we should be pursuing for a lifetime. So there's lots more to talk about. But today we're going to be talking about a way of Jesus that for, for the most part has been completely lost in our church culture. And it's the art or the practice of fasting. The one of the ways of Jesus was fasting. And so uh, real quick before we get started, um, some recommended readings for you. Uh, this book is called Live No Lies. It's by John Mark Comer. I reference John Mark Comer a lot in my messages, and I read a lot of his books, and, and I'm a big fan of his writing. So Live No Lies, um, it's all about, um, it's kind of a book on spiritual warfare, actually, recognizing and resisting the three en- enemies that sabotage your peace. He talks about the flesh, he talks about the devil, and the ways of the world. The three enemies that sabotage your peace. And in the midst of this book, he has a brief little section about the power of fasting when it comes to, to your, your spiritual warfare and, and fighting against the flesh. The second book that I want to recommend is called Fasting. It's by Scott McKnight. And he has a whole series on uh, practices of Jesus. But one really great one is called Fasting by Scott McKnight. Many of you know that I've got four children. Four kids that are five and under, and a house with multiple toddlers is inevitably, inevitably just going to experience tantrums. Am I right? We, get, we experience tantrums on a, daily, on a weekly, if not daily, basis. In fact, uh, this morning I experienced a couple tantrums. I was pouring cereal for one of my kids, and when I use these examples about my kids, I try to keep my kids nameless. Uh, but one of my kids was asking for cereal, and there was two boxes of the exact same Honey Nut Cheerios. One box was open, and one wasn't opened. And I poured cereal into the bowl from the open box, and my child started to freak out because they wanted cereal poured from the box that wasn't open. And I said, why? It's the exact same cereal. You have to finish this box before we open the new one. And my child just kind of went ballistic on me and, and uh, had a tantrum. And this is, this is all happening this morning before I get to church. Just setting, just, you know, I'm feeling the spirit of God this morning. And, uh, you know, we experience tantrums all the time. And often, most tantrums occur when we tell our kids that they cannot have something that they want. Right? Whether it's a piece of candy, another episode of their favorite TV show, uh, it's a toy at the store. We've been walking around Walmart and they want something. We tell them not today and they might have a tantrum. We experience tantrums all the time because our children haven't yet learned self-control. They haven't yet learned delayed gratification. And so when they can't get what they want, they freak out. Now, unfortunately... What is supposed to be reserved for cognitively underdeveloped children has become a norm in our society today, hasn't it? That that we, we live in a culture, this Western culture, that shouts from the rooftop that if it feels good, then just do it. If you want it, you should have it. 
Don't let anybody tell you that you can't be with a person or you can't have what you want or you can't do what you do. And if somebody tells you otherwise, then they are oppressive. You need to cancel that person. You need to push them out of your life because don't let anybody tell you that you can't have what you want. We think that we have to get what we want in order to be happy. At least our culture does. They say, live your best life. Follow the desires of your heart. You only have one life to live. So treat yourself. Go on splurge. Go to town. You deserve it. You want that brand new car? I know you can't afford it, but you know what? You deserve it. Put it on credit card payments. Your spouse isn't making you happy anymore. Well, you know what? You might want to consider following your heart so you can be happy. Maybe it's time to move on. You know, some people in our culture are saying maybe it's time to open up the relationship, invite a third party into the marriage. This is what our culture does today. Follow your heart. A dozen donuts sounds good? Treat yourself. Come on. You deserve it. See, the problem with following your heart and satisfying your body's desires is that Jeremiah 17, 9 says that the heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? See, the Hebrew word for heart in this passage, it describes the seat of your emotions and also the seat of your appetites. It's the seat of your desires, the seat of your your mind, the seat of your emotions. And so in this particular verse, when it's describing heart, it's talking about these desires or these appetites that are carnal in nature. And Jeremiah warns you, do not follow the desires of your heart because they're deceitful. You cannot trust your own appetites. You cannot trust your own desires. It's the desire to satisfy with wants of the body. It's to, excuse me, it's the desire to satisfy the wants of the body with food or shopping or sex or recognition from others with pleasure, with instant gratification. Now, are those things outright evil in and of themselves? No. Pleasure was made to be experienced when living inside, inside God's design. Sex is good and was God's idea for a marriage between a man and a woman. Food is supposed to be enjoyed, which is why feasting is such a huge part of the Bible. It's a huge part of heaven. We're going to be feasting a lot when we get to heaven. There's a huge table that has been prepared for us. Food was meant to be enjoyed, but we were created to have control over these desires. But instead, oftentimes, these desires control us. And they steer us in the directions of life. The author of the starving book that we're reading, Jess Strickland, he talks about, I think it was in day two of our fast. He said that we are not bodies with spirits, but we're spirits with bodies. Meaning that you were created with both flesh and blood, a body and a spirit, but you are not a body with a spirit. Your body is not in control. Your spirit, when you die, will live on to eternity, and your body will fade away. Your body will fade away, but your spirit will live on forever. Therefore, your spirit is actually supposed to be in control. You are a spirit with a temporary body. Let's read about how God made us in Genesis chapter 2. If you have your Bibles, turn with me there to Genesis chapter 2, verses 4 through 7. Very first book of the Bible, it says this. 
This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created, when the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. Now no shrub had yet appeared on the earth, and no plant had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not sent rain on the earth, and there was no one to work the ground. But streams came up from the earth and watered the whole surface of the ground. Verse 7. Then the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. God breathed into man the breath of life. And the word breath here is the Hebrew word for spirit. God gave man a spirit in this moment. So you were created with both flesh and blood, with a body, but you were also created to have a spirit. Throughout scripture, Paul especially talks about these two things. He talks about our flesh and our spirit being at war or conflict one another. He contrasts these two things all the time in his writings. And our spirits, like I said before, are meant to have their hands on the steering wheel. They're supposed to be guiding us in life. But somewhere along the line, our bodies or the desires of our flesh took over control. They grabbed the steering wheel. Let's read about when this happened. In Genesis chapter 3, if you flip to the very next page, or the, yeah, it should be the next page in your Bible, Genesis chapter 3, it says this. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Verse 6, here's the important part. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food, it was pleasing to the eye and desirable for gaining wisdom. She took some and she ate it. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. Now, I grew up in church, and I've heard this story, like many of you, hundreds of times. I've heard this story preached hundreds hundreds of times. And what's interesting, though, is until the past couple weeks, I've never heard someone make the point that the first sin had to do with food. Now, however you, however you read the Bible, whether you read this as a historical account or a poetic interpretation, or ancient mythology, however you want to read it, food is involved in the story of the first sin. Now, it, it wasn't really about food, was it? It was about redefining what is good. Instead of trusting, is it, am I mic going in and out? Okay, instead of trusting what God said was good, Eve went with her gut. She went with her heart. She went with the desires of her flesh, and she listened to the voice in her ear. See, temptation in your life will always boil down to the question, am I going to trust what God says is good or am I going to go with my gut and listen to the voices in my ear? Whatever those voices may be, whether they're culture, whether they're, uh, they're evil voices, putting thoughts in your head that's, that's not true, the lies from the enemy, whatever those voices may be, are you going to go with your gut or are you going to listen to what God said is good. 
But the Bible says that when the woman saw that the fruit was good, it was pleasing to the eye. It was desirable for gaining wisdom. She ate it. Eve went with the desires of her flesh, and ever since then, our spirits have been at war with something that Paul describes as our flesh. Now, uh, the flesh is, is not the body. The body actually is a neutral party in the war between your flesh and your spirit. You can use your body to satisfy the desires of the flesh, or you can use your body to, to benefit your spirit and to, and to be used as a tool for the Holy Spirit. Your body is a neutral party in this. And Paul, he's not talking about your body oftentimes when he describes the flesh. He's talking about the desire to have things that are out of God's design. The desire for things that are not in God's design. This is what Paul describes as the flesh. And in this moment, in Genesis chapter 3, there was an exchange of control. Notice that in earlier in Genesis, in chapter 1 of Genesis, God gave mankind control. He gave mankind dominion over the earth. He said, I want you to rule over creation. I want you to subdue it and multiply. I want you to work the ground. Adam was supposed to be in control. Humanity was supposed to be in control of all the plant life and all of the animals. He was supposed to have control over creation. But in Genesis chapter 3, it was the plant life and the animal kingdom, the fruit and the serpent that tempted Eve to sinning and suddenly now creation had control over mankind and there was a flip that happened and suddenly our desires became disordered John Mark Comer in his book he talks about disordered desires that we have desires for things but like I said before we're supposed to have control over these desires we're supposed to place them in order and suddenly in Genesis chapter 3 our desires became disordered and we crave anything that makes us happy or anything that makes us temporarily feel good this can explain why so many people in our country are in debt can't it it's the it's a human condition now It explains why people are in debt. It explains why the divorce rate is so high. Why obesity and heart disease and cancer is so common. Why sexual addictions and other addictions are running rampant through our world. It all began when humanity followed the desires of the flesh instead of allowing our spirits to abide in God and be led by Him. To trust what God says is good. Addiction. Pleasure, instant gratification, being led by our feelings and desires. These are the ways of the world. They are the patterns of the world. Romans 12, 2 is our verse throughout this series. is Do not conform to the patterns of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. So if those things are the patterns of the world, then what are the patterns of in practices of Jesus? What are the ways of Jesus? Is there a way of Jesus that brings our bodies in submission to our spirits and helps us to to develop more self-control? Yes, there is. Fasting was a practice that Jesus modeled throughout his life. Fasting. Now, fasting is, is a topic that 
doesn't get talked a lot. We live in a culture uh, that says to do what you want, make, your, make yourself happy. You have to get what you want in order to be happy. So it's crazy to talk about fasting in our culture. It's even crazy to talk about it in church sometimes. You know, I, I grew up in a church that didn't really prioritize fasting. We didn't talk too much about it. And so it, it seems a little ludicrous to go a whole day without food, much less any longer than a whole day. But if we look in Scripture, we see it all throughout the Bible, and it was actually one of the core practices of followers of Jesus. And so to get back to the ways of Jesus, we have to get back to talking about what fasting is and the importance of fasting in our lives. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 4. We read from this passage uh, last week. We're going to read there again. It's the first account that we have of Jesus fasting in the Bible. Matthew chapter 4. Verse 1, then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. The tempter came to him and said, if you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become what? Bread. And Jesus answered, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Is it just a coincidence that the very first temptation in Genesis had to do with food. And then Jesus' very first temptation also has to do with food. If food feeds the flesh, then what did Jesus say feeds the spirit? Every word that comes from the mouth of God. What did Eve ignore in order to eat the fruit? The word of God, the instruction of God. What God had said to her. See, by fasting, Jesus was ignoring his flesh so that he could feed his spirit. And at the end of his 40-day fast, Jesus was at the height of his spiritual power. We talked about this last week. The devil didn't come to Jesus in the weakest point of his fast. He actually came to Jesus at the height of Jesus' spiritual power because he had just spent the last 40 days communing with his heavenly Father and feeding his spirit. Jesus was at the height of his spiritual power. And Jesus expects his followers to do the same thing that he did, to fast. I don't know if you've ever done a 40-day fast. I've never done a 40-day fast. But Jesus does expect us to fast. Maybe not a 40-day fast. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 6, a couple, couple, couple chapters later. We are, uh, this is the Sermon on the Mount. And Jesus, uh, this is one of, uh, it's it's Jesus's longest sermon that we have a record of. And Jesus talks about things like prayer and fasting point blank. And he tells us what to do. He gives us some instruction. In Matthew 6, verse 16 through 18, he says this, When you fast, do not look somber as the hypocrites do, for they disfigure their faces to show others they are fasting. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. You wanted attention? You got it. That's it for you. But when you fast, put oil on your head and wash your face. Do your hair. Take a shower. Look happy. So that it will not be obvious to others that you are fasting, but only to your Father who is unseen, and your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. This passage, it reveals two things to us. Number one, that Jesus expects all of his followers to fast. And number two, 
Jesus knows that we're prone to do it for the wrong reasons. He knows that we're prone to mess it up. That makes me feel a little better. How many of you have messed up your fast already? Come on, be honest. I've messed up mine a little bit. I've messed up mine. I've fudged mine. He knew that we would mess it up. We were going to make mistakes. He knew that some people would do it for attention. He knew some people would fast to try to lose weight. He knew we would have all these wonky motivations for fasting. But in verse 18, Jesus reveals that the motivation should be a heavenly reward, a secret reward. Because your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Now, in the very beginning of this verse, notice Jesus' words. He says, when you fast, not if you fast. He expects his followers to participate. Now, don't feel bad if you've never fasted before or if you rarely fast. For many people, this practice, uh, people looking from the outside in, they look at a church that fasts, and it kind of looks like cult-like behavior, if we're all being honest. It's a bizarre practice. Especially in our Western world, it sounds crazy to go without food. But until recently, fasting was one of the core practices of Jesus for his followers. In fact, you know, if you were to ask people in the church today, okay, I'm a Christian now, so what are the three most important practices of being a Christian? People in the church today might tell you prayer, reading your Bible, and going to church. Probably the three most important things, prayer, Bible, community, a spiritual community. But if you were to ask, ask somebody in the first century, what are the, most, what are the three most important practices of being a follower of Jesus? They would probably tell you prayer, fasting, and giving to the poor. The three most important practices of being a follower of Jesus. See, for centuries... The early church fasted every Wednesday and Friday. Did you know this? They actually fasted every Monday and Thursday. But once, uh, once they started aligning their fast with the Pharisees, fast, the Pharisees started fasting on Mondays and Thursdays. And they would do it for all the wrong reasons. And they would look like hypocrites and stuff. So the followers of Jesus decided to shift. And they began to fast on Wednesdays and Fridays. Every Wednesday and Friday, they would, they would wake up. They would go the whole day without food until the sun set, and they would have a meal after the sun set. It's just what you did if you were a Christian. Every Wednesday, you, you fasted. If you were a follower of Jesus, this is just what you did. It was a part of being a follower of Jesus. And when the church developed the practice of Lent in the 4th century, followers of Jesus, they would wake up, they would go without food until sunset for 40 days every year. They did this every year leading up to Easter. For 40 days, they would go without food. It was just what you did when you were a follower of Jesus. Now, I personally could count on one hand how many times I've fasted without food. And I, I've never fasted weekly. But after, after reading all this material, I'm seriously considering trying it just to see the results. It was a way of Jesus. It was a practice of Jesus. Before we go any further, though, Let me answer just two questions real quick. What is fasting and why do we fast? The first question, why is fasting? The truest definition of fasting is to go without food. Pretty simple. Point blank. Go without food. Some people believe that going without food is the only way to fast. You're not fasting if you're not going without food. 
And I do believe that this type of fasting is very beneficial. I'm also aware that not everyone has the ability to go without food because of maybe some medical condition. So let me ask you this question. Is there power in the practice of fasting alone? Does the practice of fasting have the power? No, it doesn't. Hindus practice fasting. Buddhists practice fasting. Uh, But there isn't any power in the practice alone, is there? The Holy Spirit provides the power, and fasting is the tool that he has given us to more greatly access that power, the power of God. Fasting is just a tool. And so uh, I would say that any time you are denying your flesh of what it wants in exchange to feed your spirit, you are participating in an act of fasting. This is just my personal opinion. If you would ask some other people, they would say, no, that, that's just, that's, that's abstaining from, from things like the Daniel fast. Nowhere in the book of Daniel does it use the word fast. When, when Daniel, he, 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 he wants to appear more fit. He wants to cleanse himself so that when Babylon comes to check him out, he, they can tell that the way that he's living is the way of God is better than the way of Babylon. But nowhere in the book of Daniel is the word fast used. However, I would say that, like I said, anytime that you starve your flesh in order to feed your spirit, I think you're par- participating in an act of fasting. You're doing something that's counter, counter-cultural, that's against the world in order to pursue things of God. Second question is this. Why do we fast? Why do we fast? Well, I got, I got three. If you read Scripture, all throughout Scripture, there's, there's three kind of main reasons why people fast and they all boil down to these three things and i'm going to give them to you right up front the first one is this to starve the flesh and feed the spirit is the first reason the second reason is to amplify prayer to amplify prayer and the third reason which is surprising to me it's to stand in solidarity with the poor we're going to talk about these three things At least I'm going to try to talk about all three of these things in one message. If we have to break up this message, we will. So the first one, why do we fast? To starve the flesh and feed the spirit. See, uh, like I said, our church is in the midst of a 21-day fast. And on day three, when we gave up sugar and junk food, I went a little crazy in my house. Because I did not realize how much sugar I had been giving to my body unknowingly. You know, I, I, I had absolutely no self-control prior to this fast. I would just go to the pantry and look for something sweet. Does anybody, is anybody, we have sweet and savory people usually. How many people in this room, is, uh, you're a sweet person? How, whereas our savory people, my wife's a savory person. So I just, this has nothing to do with my message, but I got to tell the story. When we started dating, when we, when we started dating, we went to the store, and I think we were going to go see a movie or something, so we picked out some candy at the store, and I got a Symphony chocolate bar. You know those, like, yeah, some of you are like, that's what I'm talking about. The, the, toffee, the toffee candies, I got a Symphony chocolate bar, and I broke off a quarter of the chocolate bar, and I folded the, the rest of it and put it in my pocket, thinking that I was being pretty conservative with how much chocolate I was consuming. My wife looks at me. We were dating at the time. So my girlfriend looks at me and she goes, I can't believe you're going to eat all that chocolate in one sitting. And I looked at her and I was like, well, I was planning on eating the whole chocolate bar until you said that. (laughs) My wife takes one little nibble of chocolate. She'll stick it in the drawer. And the next time we open the drawer, it's gone bad. 
I'm like, how do you do this? She's a savory person. Okay, off topic, back on, here we go. Fasting, fasting trains our bodies to not get what it wants. You train your body when you fast to not get what it wants. In a culture driven by feelings and desires, fasting becomes a bizarre practice even for Christians. We think, like I said before, we think we have to get what we want in order to be happy. In order to experience joy, you have to be getting what you want. Think about your life. What happens when we don't get what we want? Fasting trains your body to not get what it wants. In this book, uh, pastor and author John Mark Comer, he writes this. Uh, He says this. With fasting, we decide of our own accord not to give our bodies what they want. As a result... When somebody else decides to not give us what we want, or life circumstances decide, or even God decides to not give us what we want, we don't freak out, or rage, or go ballistic on Twitter. We've trained our souls to be happy and at peace, even when we don't get our way. Fasting is, a pra- fasting is practicing suffering. It's teaching our bodies to suffer. Suffering is unavoidable in life. In fasting, oh, excuse me, he says, suffering is unavoidable in life, but joy is not. In fasting, we're learning how to suffer with joy. When you fast, you are teach, you're doing what Jesus said in Matthew cha- chapter 6. Yes, you're fasting, but you put oil on your head, you take a shower, you are learning to have joy in the midst of your body going, I don't like this. Give me sugar. Give me something to eat. You're training your body to be okay with not getting what it wants. So when you don't get what you want in life, you have conditioned your soul to be content even when you don't get your way. Now, to be clear, your body is not evil. Your body is a gift created to experience pleasure in the right time and in the right place and in the right way, but your body has been corrupted by sin. And it fights. It it works against you in your fight with the desires of your flesh. Turn with me to Galatians chapter 5. Galatians chapter 5, it's in the New Testament, verse 13. Paul writes this, You, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free. We could just pack up and go home right there. It's a good word, Paul. But do not use your freedom to indulge in the flesh. Rather, serve one another humbly in love, for the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command. Love your neighbor as yourself. If you bite and devour each other, watch out or you will be destroyed by each other. So I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the flesh desires what is contrary to the Spirit, and the Spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict with each other. Get this. This isn't a popular scripture. So that you are not to do whatever you want. Your flesh is in conflict with the Spirit. I love what John Mark Comer says 
In his book, he says, fasting is a way to turn your body into an ally in your fight with the flesh rather than an adversary. Oftentimes, our bodies fight against our spirit. They are allies with our flesh because they were trying to gratify the desires of our flesh and give our our flesh what it wants. But fasting turns your body into an ally with your spirit. You can use your body to satisfy the cravings of the flesh, or you can use your body as an instrument for the spirit to use. At the same time we starve our flesh, though, this is the same the same coin, opposite side. The same time you're starving your flesh, you're feeding your spirit when you fast. You're feeding your spirit on what the Holy Spirit gives. When you are attempting to retrain your body and transform your mind to practice a healthy habit, like waking up early in the morning or spending time in prayer, you're just trying to retrain your mind and your body to be transformed. Did you know that willpower is not enough? Willpower is not enough. How many times have you tried to conquer an addiction using willpower alone? How'd that work out for you? Willpower in the face of porn will lose every time. Willpower in the face of past wounds will lose every time. Willpower in the face of any other addiction will lose every time. Fasting provides an avenue to feed on the Spirit so He can provide the strength to overcome those battles. It's feeding on the Spirit's power. Did you know this is the Bible's definition of freedom? Freedom in our Western world means the ability to do whatever you want, whenever you want, and nobody to tell you no. But in the Bible, it says that that looks more like slavery to your passions and desires. You become a slave to what your flesh wants when you do whatever you want. That's not the Bible's definition of freedom. It's actually slavery. Paul says in this passage that we just read that you shouldn't do whatever you want. See, biblical freedom is having control over your fleshly desires so that your spirit is free to choose what is good. Your spirit, when it's at war with your flesh, is not always free to choose what is good because it's been corrupted by sin and that the pull of the flesh is so strong that, that we do what Paul talks about in, in, in Romans, how I, I do what I don't want to do and the things that I want to do, I can't do. I don't do. He talks about that war with our flesh and our spirit, but when you fast, you are making your body or turning your body into an ally with the Spirit. That's the first reason, to starve the flesh and feed the Spirit. The second reason is this, it's to amplify prayer. Have you ever spent time in prayer and it feels like there's a barrier between you and heaven? There's this wall between you and God. It just seems cloudy. You can't focus. Your mind is racing everywhere, and it just seems like you can't make a connection with the Lord. In the Bible, the practice of fasting is often paired with prayer because it has a way of focusing your spirit and tuning out the flesh. There are many physical benefits to fasting, but one of the most useful benefits when it comes uh, to prayer is the effect that fasting has on your mind. One, of, uh, one nutritionist and doctor-approved medical article says this. I read this, this last week. It says, uh, when you fast, your body has less toxic materials flowing through the blood and lymphatic system. We all know what those are, right? Lymphatic system? Yeah, totally. Uh, making it easier for you to think. 
While fasting, the energy you normally use to digest food is available to be used by the brain. You won't likely notice this mental change until the first few days of a fast because your body takes time to adjust. You might have headaches or pain points at the beginning of the process, but after your body clears itself of toxins, your brain has access to a cleaner bloodstream, resulting in clearer thoughts, better memory, and increased sharpness in your other senses. Fasting actually sharpens your mind. It's been medically proven that it sharpens your mind. That's why fasting and prayer are so often linked. If you turn with me to Acts chapter 13. Acts chapter 13, verses 1 through 3, it says this. Now in the church at Antioch, there were prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manaen, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting... The Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. So after they had fasted and prayed, they placed their hands on them and sent them off. You can pray without fasting and you can fast without praying. But when you put the two together, they strengthen each other. They aid each other. Fasting is a natural ally to prayer. Throughout the Old and New Testament, people fasted. When they cried out to God for an answer. And uh, author Scott McKnight in this book, Fasting, that I recommended earlier, he, he points out that in the Bible there are five types of prayer that are used in hand with fasting. Five types of prayer that people would often partner with fasting to get a result. The first type of prayer that is often partnered with fasting in the Bible is uh, to repent. People would fast and pray to repent. In 1 Samuel 7, um, there's, a, there's this time uh, where Israel is turning back to the Lord. You know, Israel throughout bi- the Bible, they, they came back to the Lord and then they committed adultery and, and, and worshiped idols and, and they did all these things, but then they would come back to the Lord and it just happens over and over. Well, this is a season where they're coming back to the Lord. And in 1 Samuel chapter 7, verse 5 through 6, it says, Uh, Then Samuel said, Assemble all Israel at Mizpah, and I will intercede with the Lord for you. And when they had assembled at Mizpah, he drew water and poured it out before the Lord. On that day they fasted, and there they confessed, We have sinned against the Lord. Fasting is often linked with prayer in times of repentance. Another another type of prayer is um, people would fast and pray Uh, to grieve in times of grief. Nehemiah 1. This is a story where Israel has returned from exile from Babylon. They come back from exile to find that Jerusalem's walls have been broken down and the gates have been burned. And Nehemiah receives news that the city of God has been destroyed. And it says that he fasted and prayed while he mourned. He mourned to the Lord, and he mourned, he grieved. See, see, fasting has a way to solidify or, 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 or to sanctify your grief. To say, Lord, I want you to be involved in this season of grieving. I want you to be involved in this season of pain that I'm going through. And fasting in the Bible has this way to sanctify our seasons of grief. And so in the Bible, people often fasted in prayer to grieve. 
The third thing is that they would fast and pray to cry out to God in a crisis. Crying out to God in a crisis. Second Chronicles 20, uh, there's this story of this vast army coming. Uh, uh, they're, they're coming to annihilate Israel, to completely wipe Israel off the face of the map. And King Jehoshaphat calls for all of Judah to fast, to cry out for the, to the Lord for salvation to make a way, to, to, to bring help, to bring aid. And so the people would fast when they cried out for the Lord. I heard this story uh, this last week, and I'm going to totally butcher it. But uh, during uh, World War II, how many of you heard of the Battle of Dunkirk? The Battle of Dunkirk. Uh, they made a movie about it a couple years ago. And um, we all see the movie, we, we see the Battle of Dunkirk, but what nobody talks about is what happened the day before the Battle of Dun- Dunkirk. The Prime Minister of, of, of Britain, he uh, called for a nationwide fast for all churches in the area to stop what they're doing and gather together and fast and pray. And for years and years and years after Dunkirk, Uh, The people in England actually called it the miracle of Dunkirk. They cried out to God. A nation stood still at one of the most pivotal moments in the war's history. They stood still and they cried out to God for help. And there were a couple of things that had happened. This, this storm came and, and, uh, and washed upon the shore and kept the Germans from, from landing on the beach and annihilating the troops that were on the beach. Uh, there were, I forget, a couple other things that had happened. But the Lord intervened in that moment in history because the people cried out to God. They fasted and prayed. That's the third reason. Oftentimes, uh, the fourth reason is this. When people fa- fasted and prayed together, it was to change God's mind in a situation. Now, I just dropped this bomb here. Let me, let me talk about what, what our church believes. We believe that God does not act completely separate uh, from our partnership. That, that, that some, some would believe that, that God is going to do what he wants to do regardless that he is completely sovereign. And let me, see, let me say the sovereignty of God is absolutely true. That God is sovereign. He knows what is going to happen. He has complete power and control. But for some reason, when we read in Scripture, we see over and over again that God actually allows his people to partner with him in advancing the kingdom of God. One example of this is in Jonah chapter 3, where God has made up his mind that he's going to destroy Nineveh in 40 days. And so he sends the prophet Jonah to Nineveh, and he says, I want you to give the most unpopular sermon of your life. Go to Nineveh and tell everybody that in 40 days, God is going to destroy the city, and everybody's going to die. So Jonah goes, and he gives this horrible message, and what do the people do in Jonah chapter 3? They all fast, and pray and cry out to God and repentance to God. And God says that he changed his mind. Some translations in Jonah 3 says that God, because the people changed their ways, God changed his mind and decided not to destroy the city after all. We see this again in, in Exodus 
when Moses was going through the wilderness and, and Israel makes God furious and God says, I'm going to kill everybody. This is the last time the people are complaining. They're grumbling. I'm just going to wipe out Israel. And Moses goes, wait, 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 wait. Don't do that because everybody's going to say that you led them out of Egypt just to kill them in the desert. God, and he reminds God of his promise and reminds God that he's slow to anger. And God says, you're right. I won't kill my people. He says, but then I'm not going with you in the promised land. And Moses says, well, then we're not going either. Because if you don't come with us, then what's going to separate us from the rest of the world? Your presence with us is the only thing that separates us from the rest of the world. And Moses pleads with God, and God says, okay, fine, I'll come with you. He changes God's mind. See, we, we could argue back and forth about whether or not God's mind can be changed. But when we read Scripture, we understand that there's this partnership of prayer that God has given us. Otherwise, what's the point in praying? Am I right? Like, if God's going to do what he's going to do anyway, then what's the point of us praying? But God has allowed partnership with us so that we can advance the kingdom of God. That's how much he loves us. That's how much he wants us to participate in advancing the kingdom of God. And so oftentimes in the Bible, people would fast and pray in order to change God's mind. The last thing is this. They would fast and pray to know God's mind in decision-making. In Acts chapter 13, that we just read this, there's a great example. They fasted and prayed and went and waited on God to give them an answer uh, for, for who, uh, who God is going to set apart to, for the work. And so they fasted and prayed until the Holy Spirit said, Barnabas and Saul. And so in Scripture, we see that, uh, we fast, that people fasted and prayed sometimes to change God's mind in a situation and other times to know God's mind. And we have to hold this intention. We have to wrestle with this because in some seasons of our life, we have to pray in a way that did what Jesus did in the garden. This is what I want, God, but not my will. Your will be done. I want you to have your way. There's a season for that. There's prayers for that. There's times of prayer for that. And then there's other times where we say, God, I'm not going to let go until I get an answer. I'm not going to let go until you bless me. If you're familiar with that story in the Bible. God, I'm not going to let go until you give me an answer. We're called to pray fervently. Last year in January, we talked about, we talked about uh, the neighbor who came knocking on the door, right? In the middle of the night. And, and it was opened up and they said, I have a friend who came over in the, in the middle of the night and I'm in need of bread. Can you spare some bread? And, and Jesus says, I tell you that neighbor is going to help his neighbor, not, not because of anything but the persistency of that neighbor. Because that neighbor was persistent and was audacious, was courageous. And sometimes we have to pray like that. We have to fast and pray and say, God, I'm not going to let go until you give me an answer. Those are the five reasons why people would fast and pray together to amplify prayer. And the third thing, the third reason to fast is this. It's to stand in solidarity with the poor. Turn with me to Isaiah chapter 58. Isaiah chapter 58. He says this, verses 6 through 7. Is not this kind? Uh, is not this kind of fast? Where? What am I doing? Here we go. Is this not the kind of fasting I have chosen? 
to loose the chains of injustice and untie the cords of the yoke, to set the oppressed free and break every yoke? Is it not to share your food with the hungry and to provide the poor wanderer with shelter when you see the naked to clothe them and not to turn away your own flesh and blood? See, in this chapter, Isaiah presents to us a different reason for fasting, a different kind of fast. It's another reason that we fast. And when we choose this fast, we choose to allow our bodies to feel hunger. And this hunger becomes an act of solidarity with those who are hungry by no choice of their own. We're choosing to empathize with people, to stand with the hungry, with the poor, We align our bodies to connect with those suffering, and we choose to untie our hearts to those experiencing injustice. Excuse me. We choose to unite our hearts to those experiencing injustice of all kinds, like systemic poverty, slavery, hunger, homelessness, racism, debt. This fast becomes a practice that trains our heart in compassion and unites us with our brothers and sisters around the world. When we as a community are moved with compassion and work to alleviate the injustices within our cities, we reflect God's heart and the character of the world. This kind of fast is very simple, and it's been practiced for thousands of years within the Christian tradition. Caesarius of Arles in the 6th century, he said this, Let us fast in such a way that we lavish our lunches upon the poor so that we may not store up in our own purses what we intended to eat, but rather in the stomachs of the poor. See, with this fast, the invitation is not only to give up a meal, but to use the money you would normally spend on feeding yourselves to feed those around you. It's kind of a whole new way to think of fasting. How many of us are so emotionally unconnected from the poor. We're so emotionally distant from those in need because we live such a blessed life that when we hear stories of people that are hungry, it just kind of goes in one ear at the other. We might we might feel a twinge in one moment, but then we just turn on the Netflix and forget about it. We're so distant, we've distanced ourselves from from the needs of our world that fasting provides a way for us to reconnect with the needs of others around us and say, I'm going to stand in solidarity with those who are hungry by no choice of their own. I'm going to use the money that I would normally spend on myself to eat, to feed those who are hungry, to give back. These are the three primary reasons. I'm going to invite my my wife to come up and play as we close. These are the three primary reasons to fast in Scripture. To starve the flesh and feed the Spirit to amplify prayer, and to stand in solidarity with the poor. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't want to pick and choose which practices of Jesus are good for me. Right? Like in my life, in my way of following Jesus, this just doesn't fit. It doesn't fit my lifestyle. You know, I like, I like quiet. I like silence and solitude, what we were talking about last week. That sounds nice. Let's do that. I like... I like prayer. I'm an intercessor. I'll, I'll do that. But fasting, you know what? Like, I don't want to be, I'm going to speak for myself. I don't want to be a follower of Jesus that chooses how I want to follow Jesus. I want to follow Jesus in the way that he's asked me to follow him. To take up my cross and die to myself, die to my flesh, 
so that I can experience his life. Oftentimes, the next step in following Jesus is making a decision that makes you uncomfortable, is making a decision that is difficult for you to do. But if you hear God's voice calling you to take the next step in following him, allow the Holy Spirit to lead you there. Allow the voice of God to lead you to the next location. If it looks like, you know, every once in a while you give up something in order to feed your spirit, then it looks like that. Maybe God is calling you to take an even bigger step and giving up a meal a day or uh, one day of the week, pick a day of the week where you, you, you decide you're going to fast on this day. I don't know what it may look for you. I'm going to let the Holy Spirit speak to your life and, and guide you and direct you. But I want to be a follower of Jesus that practices the ways of Jesus and doesn't pick and choose which ones I like and which ones I don't like. Jesus knew, the, Jesus knew best. And if fasting was a regular part of his life, then I need the Holy Spirit's power to make it a regular part of my life. It's not an easy practice. So in this moment, I want to ask for help. I want to ask the Holy Spirit to help us. We're in the midst of this 21-day fast. We're on day eight. We've got two more weeks to go. It's been hard. These last eight days, you know, they've, they've been a difficult eight days, but they've also been such a, a filling eight days. I, I can tell that my spirit is being fed. So let's ask the Holy Spirit's help for the remainder of our fast. And as we move on from this fast, would you bow your head, close your eyes with me. Holy Spirit, we're asking for your help. God, our, oftentimes our flesh is at war with our spirit and our bodies. They ally with our flesh. But Jesus, we, Holy Spirit, we need your help to turn our bodies into an ally with our spirits. God, I pray that you would rejuvenate us. I pray that you'd give us so much life in the, in the remainder of this fast. You'd give us so much uh, food for our spirits that it would bring us to life. God, I thank you for what you've already done, that you're already pointing us to more scripture, that you're already having us spend more time in your presence. Continue to do that work that you began in us. And and God, we ask for your Holy Spirit's help. In Jesus' name we pray. I pray a blessing over every person here that they would leave fed and refreshed and ready to do your work, that they would leave others focused and, and looking outward. I thank you, Jesus for this this morning, this opportunity. In your name we pray. And the church said, amen.